Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, the economy has got a lot of people worried about their future. There's a lot of Americans say that their financial plans have changed. Some thought retirement was ahead of them. Others are going back to work. But how should we view retirement? How should we look at it? There's kind of a lie to retirement. And we're going to talk about that today with Joel Malik. He has re-released his book, After Work. He co-authored it with Alex Lippert, and they've uh, written a book called After Work, An Honest Discussion About the Retirement Lie and How to Live a Future Worthy of Dreams. Joel, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. How you been? Well, I've been well, and we need to talk again uh, because a lot's happened since the pandemic, and I think it has shifted the way people think about their financial situation and their retirement. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. Since we released our first version of the book, we just self-published. It was kind of something we wrote more for our clients because we we wanted them to have a resource that wasn't so financially oriented. Uh-huh. And it looked at the non-financial factors to retirement because we found that, you know, people, they, they just didn't plan for that side of it because they assumed it would be easy and good. And and not that it's not good, it can absolutely be, but there's some real intentionality that's required, I think. So um, our our little book was picked up by uh, Tyndale and has since been republished, and we've got some exciting things, I think, to share with you. Mm-hmm. So maybe the pandemic, maybe it made people's situations worse, um, maybe people's anxiety about their resources and their finances are higher as a result of that. What what have your clients been saying to you? What what have you heard? What's word on the street? Well, I think we're getting a real shift to, um, you know, maybe our book was a little bit uh, ahead of the narrative changing, but I think we're stepping into this now, which okay. is, look, what is retirement actually? That's a really good question. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's kind of interesting, Bill. Um, retirement didn't exist until about 1885, um, there were a number of factors going on, and then as we rounded uh, the century mark in, and we came into the early 20th century, we entered the Great Depression, a very trying time for our country, and this is where it really took hold. But it's interesting, you know, like if we if we read Scripture, we want to understand the context in which it was written so that we can really understand what it's communicating to us. Well, the retirement setting is kind of similar in that we were essentially being forced to retire by the government, Social Security Act and a few other things, because uh, older people wouldn't leave their jobs, and, and the government wanted younger people to have the jobs. So they created these incentives to essentially try to make older people go away. Um, so it was never a biblical thing to to retire. You know, you don't stop having a purpose at 66. So. True. You know, when we when we kind of understand the reason it came about, that doesn't feel, sound so dreamy, does it? No, no. <laughs> um, you know, so I just find it interesting that that's how it started, and we've kind of turned it into this uh, this dream. But what what we're learning is, 
people are starting to realize like, hey, wait, I don't actually enjoy doing nothing all that much. Um, I'm sorry that this is what society has tried to sell us, but I'm not buying it. I I do want a different season. I might not be able to run a, a radio show or a podcast like you do, Bill, from I don't know how many hours it takes you to do this. You're not going to be able to do that when you're 80, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do need a change of speed, so to speak, but you're still going to need something to wake up to on Monday morning. And that's what we're talking about in the book After Work is how to find this balance between purpose and calling in retirement. Nice. Joel Malik is my guest, and his book is called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. Um, Joel, maybe we can talk about the retirement lie. What is that? Yeah, so the retirement lie is that a self-focused, slightly withdrawn retirement, sort of the stepping out of your contribution to things, like your your best days are behind you, um, that that season is going to be enjoyable and fulfilling. Um, what What we've learned is that if the season becomes all about you, and not about other people, that it is going to end up being a letdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're sold this idea of what could possibly go wrong with double the free time and no real structure. <laughs> and what we've learned is a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I get it. A lot of people have worked for 30 years, 40 years. They poured themselves into whatever they define as work, whether it was raising the kids or going to an actual place of work for all this time, what people mostly need, Bill, is a break. They need a good six months, and we call this the retirement sugar rush season. It's We kind of liken it to a honeymoon, at, is to a marriage. It's like the honeymoon's a fun season, but it's not how you live the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, the, the we, sugar call that, rush we call that a sugar yeah. rush, huh? The sugar yeah, rush phase yeah. of retirement. Yeah, and the funny thing about that is, is when you step into the sugar rush, um, everything is what you dreamed it could be because, hey, you do need a break, and now yeah. you don't have to set the alarm. You can go do all these fun things, but then the winter rolls around, it gets dark earlier, stays dark later, can't go outside as much, and you really run into this real problematic season. Mm-hmm. Joel, there's a difference, I know, you talk about this in the book, between happiness and meaningfulness. Do, yeah. Don't the two go hand in hand? Uh, not really. I think we see them as almost opposites in a way. Um, happiness is kind of this thing that we continually try to chase. It's very elusive. And we try to obtain happiness by either uh, gaining things like a, a vacation home, an RV, or doing things, a trip around the world, a long cruise. Um, all of these things can be good, but they should not be the main course on the dish. I call them the garnish. But we try to make them the main course. Mm-hmm. When we make them the main course, there's no sustenance in the meal, if you catch my, my illustration. So what I tell people, meaningfulness needs to be the main course. And the way we gain meaningfulness, Bill, is almost always in doing something for someone else. Yes. So Serving. it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got all kinds of stories I could share, but I will tell you this. The core nucleus of that is it doesn't involve you. It involves you breathing life into someone else. Yeah, it's so true. So staying busy in retirement may not be the best strategy. No, actually, I, I don't like busyness in retirement, and I'll tell you why. Uh, some of uh, the least purposeful people I know are the busiest. And 
it's a natural go-to because we want to fill up all this free time we have. We go from about six hours to seven hours a day of free time to 16. Um, and we don't know what to do with it, and we feel less useful. And so we our go-to easy button is just get busy. And when we get busy, we don't have to think about the fact that we're not being purposeful. And it's sort of this weird mirage because we think we're doing the right things, but years later we feel like, what have I really accomplished? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Joel, in your book, After Work, you encourage people to look at their lives and the choices they've made backwards. What, yeah. what would that do yeah. to your perspective? How, how would that help? Yeah, no, that's a good one. Uh, I came up with kind of a fun term uh, that just sounds cool. It's called the deathbed decision matrix. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sounds like something out of Hollywood. Um, you know, but the idea here is that when you're trying to plan, let's call it, let's say you're five years from retirement, you're trying to think through like, when this season comes up, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? And sure, you're going to blend in some of the really fun stuff. But I'm talking more about what ways am I going to make an impact? What's going to get me up on Tuesday, eight months into retirement when it's blowing 50 and cold out? <laughs> you know, and, and what I like to do is I like to think through that through the deathbed decision matrix, which is if I have the opportunity to have some time to reflect at the end of my life, Lord willing, and my family's around me, what are the things that I'm going to wish I could go back and do more of? Mm. And I'm, I'm going to tell you that all of the answers, they're going to be a little varying, but they're all going to have another nu- kind of a nuclear center. And that is they're going to have to do with the people in your lives, the legacy you've left, the impact you've made to others. They're not going to be, I wish I could shoot one more round of 73. Right, right. Right. Um, and so we try to map it out. I, I like golf. I'm not against golf. Um, but I think we need to think differently about the way we approach things. And if we've got one more minute, I'll, I'll give you a quick tangent story on the whole golf pickleball. Thing. Yeah, please. So I love sports. I think it's fun. I think you need to weave these things into your life, especially in retirement. You get some more free time. Don't have to hit the alarm every morning. That's great. Totally in support of that. But I want a little mind shift here because this will make a big impact on your life. Let's say the next time you go golfing, it's not so much about the score. It's not so much about trying to beat your last round. Let's make it about who are you going with, and can you start speaking into their life and getting to know them on a deeper level? You're kind of you know, pursuing this, this calling in your heart that God puts in all of us to help others, and maybe they're going through a, a family thing they're dealing with or their kids are struggling. Maybe there's a way you can be praying for them or supporting them. So you're really there sort of on mission and you're enjoying around the golf. It's just a different way, a different lens to look through all the things you do in your life. Mm-hmm. Joel, I know you've had a lot of opportunity to counsel uh, clients and I bet they have expressed to you some of the regrets they've had. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think a few things are, you know, due to some, you know, not so good choices along the way. Um, or just not willing to maybe take that step in terms of like physical fitness and things like that. They can't go on the, the important trip or go on that trip with their grandchild because they just simply don't have the health to support it. So, you know, one regret we see is like, I wish I would have stuck with that fitness thing, mm-hmm. even if it was just a, a three mile walk in the neighborhood. Cause I couldn't jog anymore. You know, a lot of them have given up on, on staying active, and that's definitely been one of them. 
the other one, this is a big one. There's a study out of Harvard that's been going for 85 years. It's the longest study in history that we know of. And they're trying to figure out what leads to a happy life. Um, and obviously very secular in nature in terms of how they approach it. But for the faith-based community, a lot of good takeaways here, but I'll just cut to the chase. The number one thing that they attribute to uh, providing happiness in life is the quality of relationships. And, and the way to define this is, is who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared and they would come help you? Um, and, and the reason this is important is a lot of people, when they retire, they don't intend to lose relationships, but they step out of all that structure that they stepped into every day when they went to work or taking their kids around to different things. And they no longer have that anymore. So all that structure fades away and they tend to let these relationships wane. And believe it or not, Bill, um, a study Cigna did says that loneliness is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Boy. Um, it's very damaging for your health. So we encourage people, don't let the relationships go. Look at it as social fitness. Mm-hmm. Like, get it on the calendar every week. You got to get with people. You got to build relationships even when you don't want to because it's that important. Huh. So, so interesting. Joel, Malik is my guest. His book is called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. We'll take a little break and come back. If you have a question for Joel and you might have a question, you can text it over 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. back with Joel Malik. He's written a book called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. Um, Joel, in your book, you, you do talk about 10 vital keys to consider for retirement. Can you give me a few of those? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think what we're trying to do in the book is help set people up in the right posture and momentum to really pursue whatever calling they have. We know everyone's got a little different calling, so we're not trying to have a step-by-step guide necessarily to purpose, but just to get the, the soil kind of tilled right so so that it can take root. And I'll give you a, a couple examples. I mean, one of them is journaling. It uh, gets a lot of comments to the for the better or for worse. Um, and an example as to why that's important in retirement is we've learned that and, and by the way, before I, I give that answer, I just want to say that it's really hard to flip all these switches right when you retire. So these disciplines are really ideal for someone uh, before retirement. So mm-hmm. they have some time to work them through and learn what works for them so that they're, they've got a smooth transition into retirement. So it's not like, hey, pick up all these things overnight. It doesn't quite work like that. Um, but specifically with journaling, the reason I think it's so critical and we talk about in the book how to journal in a sustainable way, what to put in an entry that you're going to like. And the reason I know is I've been journaling for 15 years, so I've learned uh, from reading back what I've found the most useful in the future. 
Um, so I've given you 15 years of tips um, in that chapter. But what I know about retirees, Bill, is that they're going to feel uh, more useless in retirement than they ever have in their life. They might not think they're going to. And that's what's tricky about this season is once you get into it, you just feel like, am I making an impact anymore? Am I making a difference? And, and we're hardwired for that. Um, and so what journaling helps with is seemingly an entire year will go by and you feel like you're not accomplishing that much. But if you can take some time to go back and read your journal uh, at the end of the year, or at a few points throughout the year, you are always going to be blown away at how much more you accomplished than you actually remember accomplishing. Mm. Um, and it's going to give you a real sense of like, I'm making progress. I'm making an impact. I forgot about this or that. That's a great reminder. It gives me some, some breathes new life into me. Um, and it also helps you process some things. Um, because one problem with the retirement season is we do face a lot of loss. Um, whether it's friends or family or loved ones, it's just a fact loss of health. And that journaling is a safe place for you to go and get some of those emotions out on paper without you, you know, letting those emotions wreak havoc on other people in your life. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just find a, a real benefit with, with journaling as a great example. Um, and then one other one, if you've got a minute, I'll, I'll tell you about it. Please. This is a little more elusive. Uh, we call it awe, uh, like A-W-E, like you're in awe of something. Okay. Um, and this is neat because, uh, well, I'll just kind of give you a quick illustration. I I don't know about you, but I, I've always been kind of enamored with flying. It's just kind of odd to me that these, you know, 30-ton things can fly us across the country in a few hours. Um, and every time I'm in, like, LaGuardia, New York, or, you know, these big cities that are beautiful, it always surprises me how people on the window seats always have their window shades down. You know, and it's a reminder to me that we have just lost – touch with how unbelievable this world is. We're so used to it mm -hmm. at this point. It's not awful to us anymore. Um, you know, so I like to make sure that throughout my day, this isn't something that sits on your calendar. This is something you take with you everywhere. It's this idea of what can, during my normal commute, during my walk in the morning that I've walked a thousand times, what can I take uh, special notice of? today? What can I set my phone down for a minute or put the Sudoku puzzle down for a minute and just take a step back and say, that's unbelievable, Lord, what you've created here. Thank you for everything that you've done. And the sense of awe, it's almost impossible to have fear and worry exist in the presence of awe. Mm -hmm. um, so if you take it around with you, we call it a practice or a discipline. It's really something that you have to make yourself do because it doesn't come naturally. Mm-hmm. Joel, you encourage people not to burn energy on things they can't control. Like what? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I just did an entire podcast episode on control. Um, and what's interesting about this is uh, I was listening to a psychologist speak at a convention I was at. And uh, this guy uh, was very prominent, had lots of uh, clients. And he said, you know, the one thing that I've learned over years and years of doing this is that my clients all had one thing in common, and it was the desire to control things that were completely outside of their control. Um, and so we talk about in the book, we go through a list of some different things that you need to put down trying to control things or putting any energy into things that you have no control over whatsoever. Like, you know, the example might be the stock market. 
um, you know, the political environment. Um, you go down the list of all the things we have going on, uh, which honestly are are crazy. Now, I'm not saying bury your head in the sand and don't pay any attention. I'm just saying don't let those things control you back. Um, don't let them be your narrative. And so, like, what we would say is there are things you can actually control. And, and we just go down that list in the book. I'll give you an example is we can control our expectations. Um, and we find that people don't control expectations very well. And what I mean by that is we have to realize that life is volatile. It's uncertain. It's ambiguous and bad things are going to happen. You know, one of my favorite um, pastors that I enjoyed listening to who recently passed away was Tim Keller. Um, and he always used to say, we all have one thing in common, and that's storms. We're either going into one, we're either in one, or we're just exiting one. Mm-hmm. And and what the reason I think this is important is I, I believe that people generally think that their life is going to go loosely to plan. And, and when these unexpected things come along, it really throws them for a loop. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, well, if we do our best to control our expectations, we would think more like, okay, bad things are going to happen. There's going to be some challenges this year. Instead of being surprised by them and kind of knocked off kilter, I want to expect that they're going to happen. And when they do, I'm going to see them as an opportunity for God to refine me, to turn that charcoal into a diamond through pressure. I want to leverage this as a way to get better, not something to be avoided. Okay, so that's a good example of a mm-hmm. way to try to let go of expectations. Mm-hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Joel. So I know you have a chapter in your book on faith. So uh, talk about faith and the retired life. Yeah, well, gosh, that's a good one. Um, in my opinion, in my humble opinion as a believer, it's really hard to have a true purpose and a real deep meaning apart from faith. Um, so one reason we put that in the book, well, really twofold, one is faith is a habit. It's something that needs to be practiced daily. So if you are a believer, it needs to be part of every part of your day, devotionals and prayer. But the reason we really wanted faith in there, because most believers know what I just mentioned to you, they understand that. The reason we wanted in there is we wanted to write the book very thoughtfully that someone who was not a believer or who was on the precipice or questioning, they could be given the book by a believer and it would touch on the faith topic well enough that it would engage them further and not push them away. Nice. Um, Nice. And so I will tell you that the very last page of the book has a QR code on it uh, with a leader guide, conversation guide that can be done in a group. Uh, We've learned that the book does very well in a group setting because everybody's got a story to share and people can grow a lot from learning from one another. Yeah. Well, Joel, thank you so much for doing the show. It's nice to talk to you again, and thank you for your book, After Work. I appreciate you coming back on. Thanks for all your hard work, Bill. You bet. Thanks. Joel Malik has written a book with Alex Lippert and Dean with Dean Merrill called After Work, an honest discussion about the retirement lie and how to live a future worthy of dreams. You'll enjoy it. We'll take a break and then be back with Dr. Greg Keddington. Show with Bill Arno, Brad Tom. 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just joined me, we're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel with Dr. Greg Heddington. I always look forward to spending time with Greg, not only because he's an outstanding teacher, but he is a dear friend. I love hanging out with him. Greg, let's get back into Daniel chapter 2. I think this time we're looking at verses 24 to 49. That's correct. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back, and welcome to our fourth lesson in the book of Daniel. Today we are looking at Daniel 2, verses 24 to 49, and this lesson is entitled Godly Wisdom. Around 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed the Jerusalem Temple, crushed Israel, and marched thousands of Jewish boys 500 miles across the Arabian Desert to Babylon, which is the city of the great Babylonian Empire. Among these prisoners are Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The scripture this week gives a very simple account. The great Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler in the world, has been suffering from troubling dreams. He demands that all of his magicians and sorcerers tell him not only what he dreamed, but the interpretation as well, or he'll have them executed. Well, the magicians tell the king that no one can describe another's dreams, much less the interpretation. By the way, we need to know that the Jews and the people in the Middle East countries assumed that dreams were messages from God, so they're very important. Now, since these wise men cannot help the king, he plans to execute them. Meanwhile, a man in another area of Babylon hears that there is a prisoner who can interpret dreams. His name is Daniel. And he tells Daniel the report that all the king's magicians will be executed because they cannot interpret the dream or even tell the king what it is. So Daniel makes a courageous request to see the king himself. And incredibly, the request is granted, and Daniel comes before the king, who then tells him the dream that he'd been so concerned about. Yahweh gives Daniel the miraculous wisdom to know what the king dreamed and its interpretation. The dream is a vision of the future kingdoms of the Western world. Even though Daniel does not know the name of the kingdoms nor the number of years that each kingdom will rule the world, he does give the correct interpretation, and the king knows it. As a result, the lives of the magicians are saved, which should make them very thankful to Daniel. And Daniel is rewarded and says, oh, by the way, I have three friends. Uh, they also need a promotion. And so all four of them have powerful positions in the government, of which Daniel has the highest. In a minute, we'll look at which kingdoms follow the Babylonian kingdom, the ones that the king saw in his dream, and then we'll have an application for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had a symbolic dream in my life that I can remember. I mean, my dreams often are nightmares about school, in which I'm thinking, <laughs> I know I graduated from high school. <laughs> I've had that dream, too. Have you? Yes. So I'm thinking, why am I taking this test, which I can't read anyway, and I don't think I'm going to have time to finish it before the end of class. It's pretty bad. Every once in a while, I still have it, which is a long time ago. But I suppose I had got some unresolved anxiety connected with school, which I don't think I'm going to go into at this point. So, history time. Scholars agree with a sequence of kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So if you're taking notes, number one, there was the Babylonian Empire, which lasted 636 
to 539 B.C. Number two, the Medo-Persian Empire, which ran from 539 to 331 B.C. Number three, the Greek Empire, which we know was begun by Alexander the Great, which went from 331 to 63 B.C. Number four, the Roman Empire, which continued from 31 B.C. all the way to 476 A.D., about 500 years, when the barbarian lord Odoacer swarmed down from the north and peacefully defeated Romulus Augustulus, the boy king of Rome, on September 7, 476, which is the date that I annually celebrate. I mean, after all, there were 50 million slaves living in Rome during the writing of the New Testament, many of whom were very qualified, doctors, teachers, artisans. And then we have number five, the kingdom of God with the culmination of the return of Jesus, which will set up the eternal kingdom. Even though at the present time, it may not always seem like the creator of the universe is running the show as we live in the tension between the world's kingdom and God's kingdom. But we do know that the theme of the book of Daniel is the same theme as every other book in Scripture. And what is that? God is in control of everything. Same theme through all the books. God is in control of everything. He is sovereign. And as we're inspired by Daniel's godly wisdom today, I want to talk about how we can acquire godly wisdom as well. So, if you're taking notes, Roman number one, godly wisdom versus the world's wisdom. Most of the rest of the lesson will be about godly wisdom versus the world's wisdom, because these ideas will be the take-homes that we'll receive today from this lesson in Daniel 2. Now, we know that because of the Internet and social media, there are many people who posture themselves as armchair experts, giving advice on almost any subject. Every moment of the day, we are all bombarded with conflicting worldviews, just as Daniel and the Jews in Babylon felt that daily tension for them, hearing different voices. And we hear a cacophony of voices airing different opinions all around us, literally in the air that we breathe. And we wonder, what is godly wisdom? There must be wisdom beyond ourselves. Well, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the Hebrew words for fear is reverence, reverence for God. Then Proverbs 4.5 says, And when you get wisdom, you will get understanding. Understanding is not just information. We receive information all day long. But that does not give us understanding or wisdom. For example, my wife Carrie and I know people whom some would call brilliant on certain subjects, but as far as wisdom, how can I put this uh, euphemistically, a little delicately, they have the wisdom of a tree sloth. Hmm. And just for the record, tree sloths have no wisdom at all. So when we get understanding, we should receive wisdom as well. And the more we pray and study Scripture, the more clearly we'll hear the voice of God instead of other voices. It's like tuning into a station on the radio so you don't get the static of the other voices. Now, one suggestion I have on prayer is when you pray, pray as you can, not as you can't. Let me say it again. When you pray, pray as you can, not as you can't. In other words, even if you just pray, Lord, help me. 
Well, you'll be in good company because the Apostle Peter prayed that same prayer one day on the Sea of Galilee. And it worked out pretty nicely for him. So, Bill, we're just about to start Roman numeral point two. I love that. We are studying um, in the book of Daniel with Dr. Greg Hennington, and we are going to continue through this uh, book, in which I'm enjoying thoroughly. We're in Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 49 for today's teaching. All right, Greg, let's get back to it. Okay, Bill, we'll pick it up in Roman numeral two, knowledge versus happiness. In the U.S., we've been told for years that we'll be happier and life will go easier when we gain knowledge through, well, school for one thing, but buying new and improved technology. I don't know if you find that that makes life easier or not. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. That's the hype anyway. And with such technological advance, like the newest generation of a cell phone or a computer and or through logging on the Internet, we also discover new challenges. For instance, we're gaining more knowledge, but where do we find wisdom in a world of growing complexity? We're tempted to believe that knowledge, advanced degrees, and high IQs are sometimes the ticket to success and happiness. I certainly hear that from the international students that we meet with. They think it's all about more and more information, higher and higher degrees. But Carrie and I both have a few advanced degrees ourselves, so we don't want to diminish anyone's desire to gain knowledge in any subject. However, there is no connection between one's intellect and happiness in life. Now, Carrie and I invite international graduate students from Southern Methodist University over to our home every other Friday night for dinner. By the way, our churches spend millions and millions of dollars sending missionaries to other countries to reach the unreached with the gospel. And yet here they are, right down the street from some of us, a college or a university not far from where we live, where a lot of the students come from places where missionaries are prohibited. These international students are hoping to make American friends, and we we can all connect with a student once a month, once a year. I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity to reach out. That's, but that's not my main point, although it's, it's certainly something we can do. My main point is we meet some brilliant students, and when we tell them that we can find good news by reading Scripture, I've had some of the students tell me honestly, you know, we students want to get an edge on the other students uh, in our classes. So if you think that reading some of your Bible will help me get a better job, then I'll look at some of the principles in the book to be successful. Well, that's misguided. It's a misguided understanding by some of the internationals, and it's one of the reasons that Carrie and I like to meet with them, because they're so motivated to succeed, so smart, and usually have no spiritual upbringing, and what they want to do is succeed in a job. But once, after a relationship with them is more established, we talk to them and how they can have a new heart and a purpose beyond a job. And then we introduce them not to religion, but to Jesus. And they are no different from anybody else who thinks more knowledge, more money equals happiness. So I want to give a few thoughts from the most influential follower of Jesus ever, apart from Jesus himself, and that would be the Apostle Paul who received his training as a Pharisee by one of the greatest rabbis in the history of Judaism. His name was Gamaliel, and we'll talk more about him another day. Roman number three, godly wisdom. When the Apostle Paul was living in the Greek city of Corinth in the 50s, that's not the 1950s, but the 50s AD, 
Hmm. Cleverness and intelligence were the most highly esteemed attributes in that city. It sounds somewhat similar to the USA right now. So how does Paul counter this ethos? By teaching them the basics of our faith, that is, the crucifixion of Christ, by which we must be saved and our sins forgiven. By the way, the word saved is a good scriptural word and not just to be used by certain denominations. Crucifixion was a method of execution considered so cruel and unpleasant that Corinthians would not even mention it in polite company. Come to think of it, neither do we. The Corinthians were fascinated by the clever rhetorical style of a speaker, and they confused intelligence with wisdom. The Corinthians preferred to listen to what was hip and popular, but the words Paul used with them in 55 AD were stark words regarding the cross, so his listeners could hear perhaps for the first time what it means to have true wisdom. And Paul starts off his message in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now you can imagine the readers shuffling their feet because they're thinking, well, that might be me. And they're nervous about it. Well, Bill, that's a lot for the first half. I think we might need a break. I I like it. Let's do that. Dr. Greg Heddington is taking us uh, through the book of Daniel, and thank you for that. We will take a short break, and we'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. My favorite thing to do is study God's Word with friends, and I'm so glad to be uh, enjoying today's study time with my friend Dr. Greg Heddington as we're going through the book of Daniel, and we are in chapter 2, verses 24 to 49. All right, Greg, let's pick it up. That's right, Bill. Well, we find Daniel is a prisoner of Babylon around 586 B.C., and he depends on Yahweh to give him godly wisdom to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We've all talked about how we can have godly wisdom, but, but how, how do we do it? We, we say it, but how do we really do it? Well, Paul has an incredible quote, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, which we want to look at. Here's what he says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again, you can just imagine people getting nervous about this because they're not really following uh, God the way they should. And he says, as God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For in the wisdom of this world, it did not know him. So God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, Jews are always demanding miraculous signs, and Greeks are always looking for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews, and simply foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. End of quotation. What a passage. What a description of godly wisdom as opposed to human wisdom. Now, did you listen to that part about when God says that God uses a foolish method to explain his plan about good news? What did he call the foolish method? Well, in verse 22, he calls it preaching. What a curious way to explain the gospel. And did you notice the part about how the execution of Jesus through crucifixion was so unpleasant and even foolish to the Greeks to even talk about and how crucifixion was the method by which God showed how much he loved us. Now, in spite of all this, someone might ask, yes, I believe God, uh, godly wisdom makes sense, but what about the other messages I get every day which talk about the importance of one's IQ? I want to be more intelligent, or at least make people think I'm intelligent, so I can be successful and prosperous and happy. How does the world respond to all that? Well, that's a good question. In 1995, there was a remarkable book published, and the subject is still discussed today. The title of the book is Roman numeral four: Emotional Intelligence. You familiar with that term? Oh, yeah. Well, it was written by Daniel Goleman, and the term is a helpful tool for describing people. In brief, emotional intelligence refers to, intelligence refers to one's ability to empathize with others, to delay gratification, uh, for example, to have the wisdom to know when is the right time to bring up a sensitive subject with someone? I mean, it's a brilliant description. Emotional intelligence is not simply about knowledge. In fact, Goldman uh, counters the popular notion that a high IQ indicates that a person will be successful, proper, prosperous, and happy. His conclusion in the book is, quote, at best, IQ contributes about 20% to the factors that determine success in life which leaves 80% to other factors. Mm, that comes as a great relief to me. There we go. Me too. <laughs> so that was the end of that quotation. But the significance of this book for us in this study is that as a non-believer, Coleman ironically stumbled across the truth mentioned long ago in Scripture. We know that biblical wisdom is much more than knowing facts. Biblical wisdom is based on knowing how we are meant to live life. And that's based on a relationship with Jesus the Christ, who knows how we operate better than anyone because he created us. So here's one definition of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is the divinely given ability to have insight as to the best way to live. Let me repeat that. Godly wisdom is the divinely given ability to have insight as to the best way to live. Here's the one last comment about the positives and the big shortcomings of emotional intelligence. Coleman says that someone who has emotional intelligence demonstrates the ability to regulate their moods, control their impulses, empathize with others, and resist temptation. Now, my response is this. I agree with him that these attributes are all good, and they have nothing to do with someone's IQ, nothing about their intellectual intelligence. So my question to him would be, Mr. Gorman, you've identified what we need to do to live well, but you've provided no solution. And therefore, the average person would say, it all sounds good, so how do I regulate my moods? How do I control my impulses? How do I resist temptation? I would if I could. It reminds me of the scripture from Paul where he says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. Of course, the uh, playwright Oscar Wilde did have an answer to this old dilemma. He said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Hmm. 
Well, a little humor there, and that's, of course, one way. But scriptural wisdom points to the solution, solution, which is we must know a power greater than we and beyond what we can accomplish by ourselves. Let me say that again. Scriptural wisdom points to the solution, which is we must know a power greater than we are and beyond what we can accomplish by ourselves. And that happens to be a relationship with our loving co-creator of the world who gives us the Holy Spirit to be with us. So that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Think of that one comment. That's from Romans 8, verse 11. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you if you are a follower of Jesus. It means that as a believer, we can have minute-by-minute conversations about everything with the master of the universe and receive power, supernatural power, which doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. So we're going, okay, I like that. I mean, I've, you know, and Karen, I've been to Cuba. She's talked about how we've seen blind men all of a sudden who could see after being prayed for. There's so much power, angels, demons, all about us. So what does this have to do with this? Well, how do we do it? The same way that Daniel and his three buddies received wisdom from God, we can do the same thing. What does, that, what does Daniel say to the king after his miraculous interpretation of the dream? Daniel says in 2.30, This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have. Again, Daniel says, This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have. So, Bill, we're about to talk about how we can converse with Jesus. I love that. You're- we are um, talking to Dr. Greg Heddington, and he's taking us through the book of Daniel, which I so appreciate, because not only do I love this book, but I love Greg, and I love um, the teaching on it, and I know from many of you who have said so, you like it too. So let's continue, Greg. We only have about three minutes left. Okay, thanks, Bill. How do we converse with Jesus? We know the answer to that. We pray, and we listen as we pray for what the Lord's telling us, and we study, not just read, but we study the Word of God, as we're doing now in Daniel. We draw on God's wisdom as we share our problems and our confusion with Him, and and we already know His general will for our lives. What is the general will of God for His followers? Well, there are no ambiguities about it. First Thessalonians five sixteen says, "Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you." Wow, that is rich. Godly wisdom that comes right out of Scripture, um, the general will of God for us. Now, we might be thinking, I know I could be more devoted to my faith, but I'm really busy, and sometimes I get more preoccupied with what is urgent rather than what's important. And I know sometimes the Lord needs to get my attention, and I don't want to waste time because time is the one commodity which I can never regain once it's gone. Well, that is for sure. Well, that's a very articulate comment. So if we do have a tendency to get preoccupied with the urgent rather than the important, then, Roman numeral 5, how does God get our attention? Well, number one, we might feel restless. We can't put our finger on it, but we have been praying about something for a while with no peace. We might ask God, am I I doing what you want, your will about this? And, And if not, help me to listen to you to understand how you want me to pray. That's number one. Number two, sometimes God gets our attention through someone else. 
we listen to what they say, and then we must ask ourselves, what kind of person is telling me this? Now, we know that all truth is God's truth, and even if it comes from Nebuchadnezzar, we might know people like Nebuchadnezzar who are not followers of Jesus at all, but we know there is a story in Scripture also in which God speaks truth to a very stubborn man through a donkey. <laughs> so, uh, and he can do it. Yeah. But however, generally, it is best to listen to someone who is living the truth, walking with God, and again, I say this over and over, it's almost a mantra of mine. How do you know what somebody really believes? You watch their feet. You watch what they do. They walk the talk. Number three, sometimes God gets our attention through troubles. All troubles are not bad, as if we need to seek wisdom to God. As J.I. Packer has said, Scripture does not teach a God will shield his loved ones from trouble when God knows that they need trouble to further their own sanctification. That's a big word for maturity in Christ. Number four, God sometimes gets our attention by blessing us. And that reminds us how good God is to us, even though we don't deserve it because we continue to mess up. That's grace. And some people misunderstand grace. They think, well, I'll do it and God will clean up. Well, grace is getting another chance and another chance and another chance. And, Bill, that's really the good news that we have, that the Lord is still faithful to us. That's outstanding. Greg, thank you so much for uh, helping us study this amazing book of Daniel. I just so appreciate this, and I so appreciate you, and I hope you and Carrie have a great rest of the day. Thanks so much, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. If you missed any of these studies, you can check it out at MyFaithRadio.com. We will take a short break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.